All right, let's open up our Bibles to Romans 6. We're going to break protocol a little bit this morning. I'll have us remain seated as we read. I think sometimes in longer sections we can pay attention more if we're able to sit down and concentrate. So we'll do that from time to time. Romans chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read all the way down to verse 13. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us truth. And I pray, Father, you would dash our wrong understandings to pieces at the foot of the mount this morning. I firmly believe Many times we place ourselves in bondage needlessly because we don't understand the words that we've just read. I pray he would help us to understand something of our position in Christ this morning. I pray you would teach us to fight with the right weapons, to gain victory by the means that you have prescribed. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to admit, I really, really struggled and wrestled with this particular passage, particularly with how to preach through it. Honestly, the verses we just read could easily break down into four or five sermons. There's so many different veins of truth that, that come in here that are important to deal with, but as I wrestled with it, I... I really believe it's more vital for us to see the main framework, the, the main thoughts of the passage. I believe this is an absolutely critical text for us to understand. Now keep in mind we have left behind chapters 1 through 5 where justification was the theme. God declaring us righteous in His sight. And at the end of chapter 5... And then particularly chapter 6 through 8, we pick up the theme of 
sanctification, which of course means to be set apart unto God. Now it's important to note the Bible use of the word sanctify actually doesn't speak of the intrinsic value of whatever it is that sanctified. In other words, the tabernacle and the articles of the tabernacle were said to be sanctified. It's not because there's anything holy about that particular wood or cloth or metal. It was simply they were set apart for the use of God. So sanctification speaks of something in its relation to God Himself. Some of you may, may remember in John 17, the Lord Jesus said that He sanctifies Himself. I think we would all agree there's no need for the Holy Son of God to be made any more holy than He already is. What He was talking about is that He's setting Himself apart to the use of God the Father. And when it comes to us, our sanctification means the same thing. It means we are to be set aside and reserved for the use of the Master. Of course, sanctification has three primary meanings in the Scriptures. There's positional sanctification. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, despite how you feel and what you see, you are this very morning in the sight of God, seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Something that God has declared as fact. There is perfect sanctification, which is the end product. The fact that we are presented before Him, sinless and complete, to be set apart unto Him for all eternity. But in the middle of those two, I dare say is our greatest struggle, practical sanctification. God setting us apart practically to live a righteous life here in this present world. The day-to-day -day victory over sin, the gradual increase in holiness is the focus of Romans 6 through 8. And specifically the verses we're looking at this morning, you could put over it the question, how can I find victory over my indwelling sin nature? I believe there's a desperate need in our churches to understand not just the requirement of sanctification, not just the fact it's expected of you, but especially the mechanisms underlying it, how it is accomplished. I've said it before, I'll say it one more time. I believe that every single parent, especially as your children grow older, ought to be very, very familiar with the contents of Romans 6 and 7. One of the greatest ways that we can provoke our children to wrath and drive them away from the Word of God and away from church is by misunderstanding what is said or ignoring what's said in these passages. I fear a great many parents, they're teenagers or they're growing up. They're, what's happening is their indwelling sin nature is reaching full force and all of a sudden they're grappling with the strength of sin within that they're shocked to see. And many times all parents know how to respond with is more rules. That's wrong, don't do that. Fix your attitude. If you ever do that again, don't you ever do that again. But many times what that young person needs is not to be told what they're doing is wrong, but to be taught doctrinally how to deal with the problem at the root level. I believe firmly many children depart fundamentalism for this very 
reason. All they see is rules. It's not that guidelines are bad. But guidelines themselves have no power. There's a great many Christians that have an honest desire to be more holy. And they press on for a while and it's like they reach the ceiling of their Christian growth and they're not sure why. Things may take on a misty unreality. They sit in church services and hear high and lofty sermons that sound terrific. But they know full well something's disconnected within. They may feel trapped by their circumstances. There are certain personality types they have to deal with in their everyday life that can bring them to anger. And that person controls them like a puppet on a string. There are certain besetting sins they can't seem to shake and to get rid of. And the problem many times is not one of sincerity or desire. The problem is misunderstanding how the battle is really to be fought. It's interesting to notice some key differences between Romans 5 and 6 in emphasis. In Romans 5 or 1 through 5, we see Christ died for you as a substitute. When it comes to sanctification, the emphasis is you died with Christ in identification. Romans 1 through 5, Christ died for your sins. He paid sin's penalty. Romans 6 through 8, Christ died unto sin and broke sin's power. Romans 1 through 5 is justification. God declares you righteous in his sight. Romans 6 through 8, sanctification. God makes you righteous before men. Romans 1 through 5, righteousness is imputed. It's transferred positionally to your account. God acquits you in his high court. Romans 6 through 8, righteousness is imparted. It's made a part of your life by the Spirit. Romans 5, faith takes you out of Adam and places you in Christ. Romans 6, faith takes you out from the dominion of law and flesh and teaches you to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And the difference between the two is as wide as the sea. I think sometimes the reason become, uh, that the old rugged cross just becomes old to us is because we're prone to have a one-dimensional view of the cross. We think of it many times only in terms of salvation. Jesus died for me. I've heard it a thousand times. But the cross is like a diamond and it's multifaceted. And it has everything to do with your conquering of sin in your daily life. And you don't hang out by the old rugged cross. You can have no power over those strong sins in your life, no matter how many rules you try to add. It's interesting how the discussion begins in verse 1 with another one of Paul's questions. You remember several times in the book he's leapt ahead and He's gone to a logical extension, and we are prone to do this. I think it's amazing the way the Holy Spirit does this. He anticipates the reaction of what the natural mind is going to think. Remember, at the end of 5, Paul is taught, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. No fear, he says, where sin happens, God's grace is magnified. Well, what's the first question of uh, chapter 6? 
Well, what shall we say then? All right, what do we conclude from that? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep committing iniquity so that grace just gets bigger on our behalf? I touched on this before, back in the earlier chapters, but if you've read much theology, you find those that attack the doctrine of eternal security. The fact that once you believe in Christ, you've been saved by the power of God and that cannot be lost. Most of the time when that doctrine is attacked, it's attacked with this question right here. If you are saved and eternally secure, then you can live however you want. Ever heard that? But notice how Paul answers the question. God forbid, Meganoida, absolutely not. But look at his reasoning, though, for shooting this line of thought down. It's not on the basis of punishment. He doesn't say, shall we continue and sit? God forbid, because you'll perish in hell and you'll lose your salvation. It's not on the basis of moral declaration. No, we can't continue in sin because sin is bad. It's on the basis of impossibility. No, because if you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. And therefore, cannot and must not continue in it. Now let's be honest. Here is where the text the plain words and our practical experience start to depart from each other. If I look at you and say you're dead to sin, if you know yourself very well, you're going to catalog the last week, and you may jump up and say, I am absolutely not dead to sin. You didn't see me lose my temper the way I did. You don't know the thoughts lodged in this heart of mine. You don't know the struggles I faced. You didn't see me when nobody else was watching. I hear the phrase dead to sin and it's almost like that phrase mocks me. We consult our feelings and experiences and we declare it can't be true. But do you know what's happening? Here's where the Achilles heel in our fight against sin is laid bare. And the real problem is manifested. You know, for much of World War II, the Mark 14 torpedo was the standard issue torpedo that was used for submarine-fired anti-ship weaponry in the entire United States Navy. It was how they sunk ships, firing torpedoes from submarines. Now, it was a tremendously designed weapon on paper. even looked good in the factory. But it was put into use in the war, and especially in the early days, caused a tremendous amount of grief, especially to the captains of the submarine. For one thing, they estimated that 7 out of 10 of these torpedoes failed to fire or detonate in at least some way. A captain would set up in a no-miss position and fire away, and many times nothing would happen. The depth sensor in this particular torpedo had a malfunction in it and caused it to drive too deep. Many times it would go right underneath the target. The magnetic sensor in it was prone to failure and would cause it to detonate prematurely before it ever got to the target. 
And then there was the contact mechanism that was designed to make it explode on impact. That had problems too. Many times they say you could actually hear an audible clang of metal on metal as that torpedo actually bounced off an enemy ship and did no damage. And one of the scariest features of it is it tended to travel in a circular direction. Many times coming back towards the submarine that fired it. In at least one case, a Mark 14 torpedo actually sunk its own submarine. They shot it, it went in a circle, it hit their ship and sunk them. But you see, all involved sincerely wanted to win the war. Every person in that sub and in the design phase understood they were facing a powerful enemy. They felt their own vulnerability and the need to do something about it and they fired off their weapon of choice whenever needed, but failure was the inevitable result most of the time. But you see, the problem lie in the weapon itself. The problem was the weapon they chose was not sufficient to the task. Now analyze your own thought processes for a moment. Temptation comes. Your temper is about to boil. You're about to let loose a verbal volley at somebody. You're about to do some other carnal thing. Conscience smites you and tells you that's wrong. Where do your thoughts go? I would submit a great deal of the time our thoughts go down when they should go up. We tend to internalize. We look at how I feel. Am I extra exhausted today? Has it been frustrating? Do I feel strong enough to stand against this? How much service have I done to the Lord today? Have I made Him happy? Maybe God's on my side and He'll help me because I went to church this morning. How are my devotions today? Well, they weren't very vibrant. Maybe I skipped them. Well, I can't expect victory over sin now, I guess. How have I performed against this sin so far? What have I done in the past? Am I able to withstand this temptation? Or it's, what punishment will I face? What spiritual duties do I have later? Is there a good reason to not sin now? Or can I afford to do it because I don't really need God's power for the next 48 hours? And so on goes the carnal thoughts. You know, most of those questions... Not all of them, but most of them do have their rightful place. But here's my point. When it comes to the moment that your indwelling wicked nature rears its ugly head against you, all of those things I just mentioned are of no use. They're either going to clank off the enemy, or they're going to drive in a circle, and they're going to sink your own ship. Because the problem is, it's the wrong weapon. Now what we find in these following verses in Romans is that victory over the sin nature does not come by legislation. It doesn't come by adding more rules. It doesn't come by a more finely tuned schedule. It doesn't come by punishing the body or some external list. It doesn't come by condemnation, by thinking about punishment, how badly God's going to lash me if I fail. The victory over your sin nature does not come through self-examination. Looking inward, looking for some spark of hope on which to base your expectation of victory. 
Victory over the sin nature comes by identification with somebody other than you. Do you know when God makes that statement through Paul about being dead to sin, you know what he's not doing? He's not asking for your opinion. He's not asking how you feel. He's not asking if this is your practical experience. What he's doing is declaring a settled positional fact from the unchangeable, omniscient God of heaven about how He sees you and what He has made you. There's a big difference between the two. I said at the beginning of Romans, we've always got to keep in mind in the Christian life, being precedes doing. False religion is always the opposite. Do this, do this, do this, and you'll be. Christianity, God, makes you something. And to the degree you believe what God has made you, you're able to do, not because of your determination, but because what God has already declared to be fact. And so in this passage, God is taking our feet off of the miry clay of our unscriptural thought processes and setting our feet squarely on the solid rock of positional truth that He declares about you and I. Now, I'm not a fan when somebody boils down a passage into three easy steps to whatever. I really can't stand that, generally speaking. But I will say this. There are three extremely critical verbs in this passage, which is why I want to take the thing as a whole, that are absolutely vital for us to understand if we're going to win any sort of battles against our sin nature with consistency the way God wants us to. I don't like to tell people to underline in your Bible. If you're an underliner, though, it might help you in Romans 6, 1 through 13 to underline these three words. The word know in verses 3, 6, and 9. Know or knowing. The word reckon in verse 11. And the word yield in verse 13. So in other words, God's path in dealing with this is first of all based upon a solid doctrinal understanding. That's number one. If we either choose or for whatever reason remain in ignorance concerning the truth contained here of what we have to know in our mind, we cannot win the way God has prescribed us to win. Secondly, there has to become a response of faith regarding that doctrine. And thirdly, there has to be a choice of the will. And like I said before, I'm not hitting these in the depth I would like to. I'm just, I at least can introduce these and stick them in our minds and I'll commend you to deeper study on every, every one of these verses because I think these are absolutely vital for us to understand for ourselves and for raising and discipling our children. All right, word number one, we see it first in verse three. Know ye not. Do you not know? Now the definition of know is a pretty simple one. It's to recognize or to understand. Keep in mind our spiritual enemy, the devil, delights to keep us in the dark regarding spiritual truth that we should know. Do you understand that the reason most Christians live beneath their spiritual privileges is not because God hasn't provided, but it's because they refuse to take God at His word. Remember on Wednesday, those of you who were here, we were talking about the book of Joshua. The parallel to the Christian life. 
God says, go in, the land is yours. Every nation there cannot stand against you. But yet we find later on that Israel couldn't stand against them. Why? They refused to take possession of what God said they already owned. That's very, very true with what we're discussing today. It's the truth that sets us free. Now, obviously, it should almost go without saying, if we're going to know in this sense, we must make a practical determination in our own life that we're going to be familiar with the Word of God. But in this discussion regarding our fight against sin, it's a particular body of truth that we are to know. First of all, verse 3 to 5, we are to know what it means to be baptized into Christ. Now here's one of those veins of truth we could get off on, and I'm not going to. I just want to say this. There is no water in verses 3 and 4. The word baptized doesn't always mean dunked in a pool. Baptizo means to immerse. It's used many ways in Scripture. Water baptism is one of them. Baptism by fire is another one. It's to be immersed in flames under God's judgment. I hope nobody here is asking to be baptized by fire. But another kind is spirit baptism. It's when we are immersed in Christ when we believe on Him and the Holy Spirit takes us out of Adam and places us in Christ. It's like we are immersed in Him. We become part and parcel with His being of His flesh and of His bones. Having been placed in Christ by the Spirit of God. Here's what he's saying in these verses. Let's make this very personal. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nearly 2,000 years ago, you were marched outside of old Jerusalem. And you were nailed to an old rugged cross. Nearly 2,000 years ago, you were wrapped in white linen. You were embalmed in fine spices and laid in the tomb of the rich man Joseph of Arimathea. And on the first day of the week, nearly 2,000 years ago, you walked out of the tomb in Christ. And death has no more dominion. He's saying the vain life you used to occupy is dead. Your old habit, your hopes, your motivations, your position in Adam has been exterminated. It's not just that Christ died for you to satisfy the wrath of God that has to be inflicted so that you could be declared righteous and justice could still be upheld. It's that the Spirit of God places you so completely in Christ that you died with Him, were buried with Him, and were resurrected with Him so completely in the sight of God that it's like a fact to him. You know, when man looked at that cross those millennia ago, they saw one man dying. You know what God saw? God saw millions through the mystery called the church that he knew were being put to death on the cross on that day so that they can find victory over their own sin nature. And the reasons given in verse 4. We are buried with Him like as Christ was raised up from the dead. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So the reason the Spirit identified you with Christ 
those years ago, one of the main reasons is to give you the power to walk your daily life in resurrection power. It's a fact from God's side of the ledger of every single one who belongs to Christ. Secondly, we are to know that our indwelling sin nature has been dealt a death blow. Verse 6 to 8. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Now here's another side trail we can take. What's the nuance between the old man and the flesh? And We're not going to get into all that. But suffice it to say, the old man is the nature that you inherited from your original father, Adam. The fallen wicked bent to sin. That you still fight against to this day. And once again from God's side of the ledger. That old man was nailed to the cross on that day. And there's two reasons given. One so the power of the nature would be crushed. So the body of sin might be destroyed. Now that word destroyed quickly. It does not mean eradicated. There are some that will stand and tell you they've reached entire sanctification. Their sin nature no longer plagues them. They terribly misunderstand Bible doctrine. The word destroyed means rendered obsolete. It means defanged. It means rendered powerless. It doesn't mean completely destroyed. If you're honest with yourself, you know that nature still indwells you. But I would point out again, it's like the other enemies we face. Jesus has overcome the world. Yet we still see the world. Jesus has defeated the devil at the cross, but yet he's still around. But his fate has been sealed. His power and dominion have been removed. He no longer has any sort of right to rule. Because the death blow has been, has been dealt. Secondly, it's not only remove the power, but the dominion of sin nature should be broken. And he says that henceforth he should not serve sin. Remember the discussion from Romans 5? Either you are in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, the very nature you, nature you received from him had complete authority. But now that you've perished out of that family... The authority has been broken. No longer has the right to dominate you. Thirdly, we must know that death to sin only had to occur one time. In verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Death was only permitted to gain the upper hand and dominion over him one time. And it would be both unnecessary and impossible for Christ to die that way again. If you are in Christ, from God's side of the ledger, you died unto sin once. And there's no need or possibility of doing it again. Someone comes and says, well, I just need to die unto sin. Do you know how terribly inaccurate that statement is? Friend, you don't need to die unto sin. You need to believe what God has declared, settled fact, that you positionally right this very moment are dead to sin. Have you ever thought about Galatians 2.20 and how the average person takes that passage? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Now what, is, what specifically does that mean to you when he makes that statement? Notice Paul doesn't say, 
I'm in the process of being crucified with Christ. I'm crucifying myself with Christ. You see, Paul was not talking about the result of his own service and effort and sacrifice or some sort of crisis experience. I think many people read that passage and they think, right, Paul was crucified with Christ. I need to sacrifice more and I need to do more and I need to be more disciplined. Well, you might, but that's not going to win you the victory over your sin nature. Paul was declaring a positional fact that had nothing to do with this service or sacrifice. He was saying, I am positionally crucified with Christ when I died with Him. 2,000 years ago. And because I understand that, I'm able to live the life of power that's been given unto me. But oh, here comes the wicked one, doesn't he? I'm still your master sometimes. All I have to do is rattle the chain and you'll come crawling back. I know what you used to be. Don't pretend to be sanctimonious to me. I know what you're made of. I know your failures. I hear your speech. I saw you before you sat in church. You can't stand against your own sin nature. Death still has dominion. Christ may have died unto sin, but you sure didn't. So step number one has got to be fill our minds with positional truth about the settled fact that we died with Christ, our old man was dethroned, and all of his authority was taken away forever, and will never, ever, ever be given back. And all of those statements are settled fact. But here's the deal. They only speak to faith, and not to human reason and experience. That brings us to the second verb we find in verse 11. It's the word reckon. You see, simply knowing the doctrinal truth is not enough. There has to be a response of faith to the truth that is known. The word reckon is an accounting term. It means to count on something. And our deceitful, lying nature and the enemy of our souls are going to do all they can to derail our thought process right here when we're tempted. It's not a question of how I've performed or how I feel or how spiritual I am or what I did last time or how tempted I am or whether or not those questions are irrelevant in this particular moment of temptation. Here's the question. Will you believe the words of the unchangeable, omniscient God of heaven or will you call him a liar and say, despite what he declares about you, you refuse to believe it and it can't be true. And if that's where the decision goes habitually, you are living far beneath the privilege God has given you to walk over the waves of those struggles. And you're placing yourself under subjection that you don't have to be under. Because according to God, your old nature was laid in Joseph's tomb almost 2,000 years ago. And the power, the dominion of that sin remains sealed in that tomb to this day. But when that stone rolled away and you walked out in Christ, the power over that sin nature came out with you. And it has never left. We see the admonition in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign. 
It's interesting, back at the end of chapter 5, he says, grace is reigning. Grace is sitting on the throne. Same chapter in verse 17, he says, God has made provision that we might reign in life. Which is really the theme of Romans 6-8, through how to reign in life. Not by being a millionaire and living in a mansion, but by living out the privileges God's given us in this present world, particularly in relation to sin and Christian service. But here's what he's saying. Refuse to allow your sin nature to put the crown back on his head. He has no right to rule. He has no robe. He has no scepter. He has no throne. He has no authority. He has no power. And you do not have to obey. And there's where the battle of sin is lost most of the time. We engage our nature on whether or not we can succeed instead of directing our mind and heart as to whether or not we're dead like God said. And so our mind's placed on subjective things instead of the solid rock of doctrinal truth. Thirdly, in verse 13, verb number 3 is the word yield. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. There's a deliberate choice of the will, but notice what that choice is. The choice is neither yield and but yield. Do you notice that our sin nature is not defeated by fighting? It's defeated by yielding. Every time the temptation to sin arises, we are presented with the choice. And the choice is not a question of if you will fight or yield. The choice is a question of who you're going to yield to. There is a big difference. Notice he talks about your members. Neither yield ye your members, but yield yourselves. In other words, your faculties, your mind, your mouth and the words that you speak, your hands, your feet, your gifts and abilities are like a gift to be willingly presented before one of two thrones multiple times daily. You know, every time that temptation comes from within, you can picture there's two thrones before you. And it's not that I'm going to put up my dukes and fight. The question is, with all my faculties wrapped as a gift, on one hand, on a usurped throne sits my nature, and Satan saying, you have to bow to me. And on the other side sits the king of righteousness. And there's no middle ground. And based upon your understanding of your death in Christ and position in Him, and based upon a choice to believe what God has said other than what you feel, you now can make the choice to kneel down at the feet of the King of Righteousness because He is worthy of your members and because He is worthy for you to not commit that sin. When was the last time you looked at a battle with sin, not in terms of, oh, that's wrong, I gotta stop, I gotta stop, I gotta stop, I gotta stop, but instead looked at it as, my refusal to yield to that is a gift I'm gonna present before my king. 
My refusal to respond that way is a present laid down at the feet of Christ. Many times our mind pictures it as a will I sin or will I not instead of who am I going to bow to? Which is the real question. You're going to be tempted this week many times. This is a decision that has to be made over and over and over in our Christian life. And it's like riding a bike when the training wheels are taken off. It takes time to learn. And God's ideal is to grow, for us to grow in these things. This isn't three steps, go home, you're going to come back next week and be sinless. But at least to make serious progress in this, I want to deliberately challenge you. Whatever that temptation is that comes, deliberately set your mind and make a beeline for the cross. Think of yourself nailed to it. Think of yourself buried. Think of yourself rising from the dead. Think about God's perspective that he declares that you are dead and the only power sin has over you is what you give it. Make the choice that you're going to believe what God said regarding you instead of your own fallible opinion. Who's more trustworthy? And then make the choice of the will to bow before the right throne and present your members to His sake. That's the way God presents to deal with these things, these strivings of the flesh that come up. If we don't come that way, consistent victory cannot happen. In the lives of our children, teenagers especially, when there's a consistent battle. I just can't get rid of that young person's temper. Legislation's not going to do it. Punishment is not going to do it. Their identification with Christ on that cross, to the degree they can grab a hold of that, is the degree they can have victory. Because right now they don't believe that they are dead. And their eyes need to be off of experience and off of feeling and off of the law and off of the punishment and on to the old rugged cross, not just for salvation, but for power over sin. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I know there's so much more that could be said here. But Father, I pray that you would open our minds to understand. We're so prone to think wrongly. And our lives and our minds and our world is so filled with wrongful philosophy. And while we want to be conservative, so-called, and separate from sin, and we want high standards, and those are good things, but I pray at the same time you'd help us to understand there is no power in a standard. There's no power in a rule. Help us to fight this battle with supernatural weapons. And I pray you'd help us to grow as a church body. The depth in the depth of the understanding of our crucifixion with Christ. So that we can please you in our daily life. Not by our own methods by the path the victory you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.